John Piper, maybe like John Piper, um, do yourself the favor and find his 2014 sermon at Together for the Gospel. 2014, T4G.org, John Piper, 2014. He did a sermon on Romans 9 that concluded with that song. We don't think of that song as a Calvinistic song. It's more of like an open invitation. We used to sing it at Baptist um, altar calls, right? I don't think of it as a Calvinistic song, but the gospel is an invitation. He's pleading, Christ is sending out the gospel to his messengers, calling people to faith in him. So if today the Lord is stirring your heart, don't resist that. Trust in Christ. Believe his gospel. Turn to the book of Exodus, please. Chapter 20. Again, if uh, maybe you're visiting this morning, I'd encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, to to take one of the few Bibles and uh, you can turn right to page 61. That's where we'll be in just a moment. Exodus chapter 20. Our country is a nation of laws. Laws are good and beneficial and even necessary for the ordering of a civil society. And that civil society provides order and protection and freedom that results in our ability to enjoy this life that we have been created to live, right? Think about how easy it was, relatively easy it was, for you to come to church this morning. The eggs that you ate for breakfast didn't make you sick because they were contaminated with salmonella. There were food safety laws, right, to prevent you from getting sick. There are water quality laws that ensure your water is clean and healthy so it doesn't make you sick. There were consumer safety laws that regulated your coffee maker or your iron so it didn't blow up in your face, right, as you were getting ready for church this morning. There were traffic laws that governed the safe passage of motor vehicles along the county roadways so that people weren't just randomly driving all erratically, preventing you from getting here in one piece. And most importantly, perhaps, there were our religious liberty laws that allow us to meet here in the first place to worship God according to our conscience. These laws, plus hundreds and perhaps even thousands more, maximize the joy and peace that God intended for you to experience to come here and worship Him this morning. These laws enable us to experience the joy and peace that that God desires His people to live in this creation. Well, we might complain about some bad laws or skirt some obtuse laws or lament the burden of over-regulation. Laws are, for the most part, implemented for the common good and we benefit personally from that common good. And if you don't believe me, just consider the chaos and the fear and the suffering that is going on right now in Venezuela. You've probably seen it on the news, right? That country, Venezuela, is the most, the world's most lawless nation according to the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index. How grateful we are to live in a nation of laws. As we continue our study through the book of Exodus, we continue, we see today that God too gave His people Israel laws. God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them to Mount Sinai and there at the base of Mount Sinai He had entered into a covenant relationship with them. Israel was God's people, and God would be their God. But how 
would they live in this covenant relationship with God? How would Israel live in the context of this relationship? And that's where the Old Testament law comes in. Israel would live faithfully in covenant with God by obeying the laws that he gave them. So in one sense, making the covenant is not the culmination, just the culmination of God's redemptive work. It wasn't just the culmination of God delivering them from Israel or from Egypt. But it's the beginning of a life lived together from here on out. So let's read our text this morning. Let's think about the law's purpose and function for Israel and how that might apply to Christians who are living now under the new covenant. So Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall, not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So I want to make three observations about the law and its role in covenant life for Israel. And then again, we'll try to see how this relates to New Testament Christians who are living under the new covenant. Observation number one God's law instructed God's people on how to live in covenant relationship with Him. God's law instructed God's people in how to live in covenant relationship with Him. So I want to make an important distinction here at the very beginning. And that is that Israel did not enter into covenant with God by obeying the law. God had established the covenant with Israel before He gave them the law. Israel obeyed the law because she lived in covenant relationship with God, not in order to be in covenant relationship with God. Okay? So let's think about those two separate ideas there. How did Israel enter into covenant relationship with God? And if we look back at chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, we will see that Israel entered into covenant relationship with God by grace through faith. Look at chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, will be, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So we look there at verses, verse 4 in particular. We see that God had set Israel apart for Himself as a people long before her existence. God had promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that He would form a great nation out of His descendants. His, he would have numerous descendants, and out of those numerous descendants, He would form a great nation. In fulfillment of that promise, then, God chose Israel to be His people. He called them. He delivered them from their slavery. He drew them to Himself. Right? Verse 14. Again, we emphasized this last week. The eyes. Look at what I have. What I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings. How I brought you to myself. God did it. God called them. God delivered them. God drew them. God atoned for their sins. He sanctified them. He drew near to them. And He revealed His glory to them as we saw last week in chapters 19 and verse, in chapter 24. That's grace. What God is doing for Israel, this covenant relationship He is establishing, it is by grace. He is doing the work. Nothing is required of Israel to enter into this except to believe, to trust, to place their faith in God, to trust Him and to pledge their obedience, which they ultimately did. They simply had to receive what God was doing for them to enter into this covenant. And the opening of the Ten Commandments really recaps that. It summarizes it. It reminds us of what has happened in chapter 19. Look at verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before God ever gave Israel a law to obey, He reminds them that He is Yahweh, their covenant God. That they live in this relationship by grace. He is the one who called them. He is the one who delivered them. He brought them up out of Egypt. He broke the chains of their slavery. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. He was entering into this relationship with them. It is the work of God. God chose. God redeemed. God called. And God made the covenant with with them. Now consider here the continuity that exists between the old covenant and the new. We enter into the new covenant in the same way that Israel entered into the old. By grace, through faith. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast. How do we have relationship with God? It is by grace. We've been brought in by grace. In fact, Paul even magnifies the reality and the essence of God's grace by describing what we were apart from grace. Considers how great God's grace is in light of who we are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So like Israel, we were enslaved. Only we were enslaved to our sin. We were enslaved to death. We were enslaved to the evil spiritual powers that hold incredible influence over our world. And unlike Israel, we rather enjoyed our slavery. Though it was destroying us, we enjoyed it. We enjoyed being slaves. And yet, what did God do? God would have been right to leave us in our slavery. He would have been right to leave us in our condemnation. It would have been right for Him to show His just wrath towards us. But God, God showed grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, 
as Lloyd-Jones said, the greatest two words of the Bible, but God. What were we? Sinners. Children of disobedience. Objects of God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, God intervened to do something that we could not do for ourselves. We could not save ourselves. We could not obey any law, much less a whole body of laws. There was no work that we could do. There was nothing worthy about us to commend us to God. He simply, by His great love and His rich mercy and His immeasurable grace, saved us. He did everything that was required to do to bring us into covenant. We are God's covenant people by grace alone. And that grace is exhibited most fully in the death and resurrection of Christ. So we enter into covenant with God by grace through faith. That was the way Israel entered. God called them. God chose them. God did everything necessary to bring them into relationship with God. Now, how did Israel live in covenant relationship with God? Well, that was by the law. And we see that also back in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. That he says in verse 5 that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That there is a measure here of, of living by the law. That they would have to do something to live out this covenant relationship. So God gave his law to Israel so that they would know how to live out covenant. In co- how to, they would live in covenant relationship with God. And the Hebrew word Torah, which we usually translate as law, just literally means teaching or instruction. The law was God's way of teaching His people how to live. It was His instruction for them concerning how they would live in covenant relationship with Him. So consider, for example, the first commandment. Chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before Me. God is instructing His people here that living in covenant relationship with Him means that they cannot acknowledge, worship, or pledge themselves to any other god. Covenant relationship with God means... Fidelity to God alone. God's calling them to covenant and He's saying, you can't worship other gods. You can't put other gods before Me. You can't acknowledge Him. You can't worship them. You can't devote yourself to Him. I am the only God. You are to be faithful to Me and Me alone. So the covenant reveals, the law here reveals what covenant life looks like. Total devotion, total love, and total submission to God. Even the more arcane laws, arcane to us, share the same purpose. Right? Right? God is regulating covenant life by His law. So look at chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, And what they leave, the beasts of the fields may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So God is instructing here that to live in covenant relationship with Him means that they will sow their land for six years, but let it lie fallow on the seventh year. Again, there might be purposes as to why God gave that law, but just at a very fundamental level, God is giving this law to His people to tell them 
This is how you live in covenant relationship with me. He is regulating for them what covenant life looks like. And this law, plus the numerous other ones that are in Exodus chapter 20 and 22 and 21 through 23, plus all the other ones of the Old Testament, those are there to regulate covenant life for Israel. By giving Israel his law, God is teaching his people how they are to live in covenant relationship. And by their obedience, Israel is demonstrating her faithfulness to God. She is demonstrating that she is living in relationship with God, that she is living rightly in relationship with God, that she's being a faithful spouse, if you will, to God. Now, again, too, we see some continuity between Old and New Covenants, but we also see an important point of discontinuity. So let me address that first. As New Covenant Christians, we are not under the Old Covenant law. We do not live out a New Covenant relationship with God by means of the Old Covenant law. So we're not mandated to circumcise our baby boys or eat kosher food or observe the Sabbath day or offer sacrifices as part of living in covenant relationship with God. The Old Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. We'll talk more about that later. And therefore, it's no longer incumbent upon us. But the New Covenant does inform us how to live out a New Covenant relationship with God. God, too, gives us instructions. He gives us Torah. He gives us law with a lowercase l to obey. And perhaps the best way to distinguish our understanding of law, then, might be to think of law, capital L, as that body of laws mandated by God for Israel in the Old Testament, and law, lowercase l, in a generic sense, as instructions or commands or principles regulating life for the church, God's new covenant people. So we're not under the law, capital L, but we are under law, lowercase l. And the New Testament calls this law variously the law of Christ, for instance, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and the perfect law, James 1.25, the law of liberty, James 1.25 also, and the royal law, James 2.8. So to avoid the confusion sometimes that we as Christians experience about Old Testament law and and, and New Testament law, if I can put those in quotes. Maybe to use the word commands. I like the word ethic. There's an ethic about the New Covenant. Uh, I also like the word walk, right? The, the New Testament uses the word walk, that we have a certain walk. There's a certain way of life that we live. Uh, expectation would be a good word as well. The New, the New Covenant sets upon us expectations for how we live in covenant relationship with God. There is an ethic there is a way of life. There's a pattern of life. There's a walk that characterizes us as members of the covenant community. So, for example, consider Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's an imperative, right? It's an imperative mood. Paul is giving them a command. He is giving an instruction to the Ephesians and by them to us. God is commanding His new covenant people to be kind to one another. To forgive one another in the same manner that we have received forgiveness from Christ Himself. There's an expectation that Christians will be kind to one another. There's an expectation that we will forgive one another. Those who've wronged us, we will forgive them just as Christ has forgiven us. Our walk should be characterized by kindness and forgiveness. So while the Old Covenant law instructed Israel on how to live in Old Covenant relationship with God, the law of Christ, the commands of Christ, the New Testament walk instructs us on how to live in a new covenant relationship with God. 
The commands of Christ teach us how to live as a new covenant people. So that's the first observation. The Old Testament God's law instructed God's people on how to live in covenant relationship with Him. In the New Testament, God's Word is, a, is also instruction for us as to how we are to live in a new covenant relationship with God. Second observation I want to make about the Old Testament law. That is that God's law revealed and thus reflected God's holiness. God's law revealed and thus reflected God's holiness. God gave His law to Israel in part. One of the functions of the law is to reveal His holiness to Israel and then to see that holiness reflected in them through their daily covenant living. Remember that God had said in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God intended Israel to be a holy people. They were to walk with Him in holiness. And so God integrated holiness into His law so that in the mundane, day-to-day realities of life, Israel would remember God's holiness and walk in accordance with that holiness. It's a very similar, similar to Proverbs as well, right? Proverbs is wisdom, very similar to law in that regard. It instructs us on how to live rightly before God in a holy way before God in the very ordinary, practical, daily, routine things, events, affairs of life. And that's what the law was to do as well for Israel. Again, let's consider a practical example from the first commandment, right? Chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. But how does, how does the first commandment reveal God's holiness? Well, the first commandment exposes a distinction between God and everything else, right? Including all other gods that may exist. In fact, the word holy means to separate or to make a distinction. God is set apart from all things. He is set apart from all other gods. He stands preeminent. He stands above. He stands superior to all gods. All gods must submit to His authority. That's the holiness of God. God stands out. God stands separate. God stands apart. But how, does the whole, how does the first commandment then reflect God's holiness in Israel? Well, by obeying this law, by having no other gods before Yahweh, Israel demonstrated that she was a holy nation, that she was also a people set apart. She was not like the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Hittites. She was a separate people set apart unto God alone. By obeying this law, Israel staked her claim and her destiny with Yahweh. And she would ride or die with Him alone. Unlike other nations, she would refuse to devote herself to worshiping other gods. Yahweh was her God and she would remain exclusively faithful to Him. And if we were to go through and read... In chapters 20 to 23, we would see these things explicated, explained even further about what it means for Israel to have no other gods before her, before him. By having no other gods before him, this meant that Israel would not make idols of silver or gold, that she would not sacrifice to any other god, that she would not utter the names of other gods, that she would not bow down to other gods or serve other gods in the promised land, that she would destroy the images of other gods and tear down the, their worship shrines, that she would not make a covenant with gods, with other gods or serve them. 
Those are various scripture references in just this section, 22-23. That's what that meant. And all of those regulations, all of those laws that God gave to Israel concerning the first commandment are meant not only to show that God is holy, but that Israel also must walk in God's holiness. And as she walked in God's holiness, she reflected that holiness to one another in the community, but also to the world. So God's law revealed God's holiness to Israel and thus incorporated holiness into the daily life of the nation so that they too would reflect the holiness of God. How might we apply this to the New Covenant? The Old Testament law still teaches New Covenant people about the holiness of God. This is why we don't throw out the Old Testament. It's why we read the law. It's why we preach on the law. why we teach what the Bible has to say to us because it is revealing to us the holiness of God. Even 3,400 years later, reading and preaching on the Old Testament law helps us to see that God is a holy God. God's holiness has not changed in that time. He remains holy. And we, as God's people, New Covenant people, need to still know that, need to still remember that. Like the Old Covenant, the New Covenant also mandates holiness for God's people. Last week we read 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 where Peter is appropriating Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, to the church. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter here identifies us as God's new covenant people in Christ. This is what Christ has done for us. He has made us to be a holy people. But notice what he says immediately after that in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So God, Peter here is exhorting God's new covenant people to walk in holiness. That holiness which reflects God's holiness. Jesus also made this point in John 13, verses 34 and 35, to his disciples the night before he was betrayed, about ready to inaugurate the new covenant in his death. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So God's commands not only teach us and remind us that God is holy, but they lead us to walk in a holy way. And as we walk in that holy way, we reflect God's holiness to one another When we love one another, you are reflecting God's holiness to one another. And you're also reflecting it to a dark and sinful and rebellious world. Jesus said that all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one. If you walk in God's holy way, you will show yourself to be holy. And people will know that. Is there anything that we more desperately need among the church right now in this culture than for God's people to be holy? Where is the salt and the light? Where are we? Why are we not pursuing this kind of holiness? Why are we not reflecting this kind of holiness? Have we taken our eyes off a holy God? 
Have we forgotten His holiness? Have we failed to look into what He has revealed to us so that we can walk in that way? May God help us to be holy. He has called us to be holy. The Old Testament law revealed God's holiness and we see that same holiness prescribed for God's new covenant people in the New Testament as well. So God's law revealed that holiness to Israel and established a way of life for them that would reflect His holiness in her. Third observation. That is that God's law was a means of blessing for His covenant people. God's law was a means of blessing for His covenant people. Now, elsewhere in the Old Testament, God had promised that if Israel would obey the law, He would bless them. And oftentimes, the blessing would be the necessary consequence of obeying the law. In other words, I don't think that God set up a tit-for-tat reward system. I don't think that was God's intention for the law, right? For example, when you train a dog, what do you do? You've got to give him treats to make him do what you want to do. Teach him how to sit. They do it right, you give him something. Great, right, reward. You're rewarding them. I don't think that God's doing that with his people saying, for example, let's just look at uh, back at that uh, Exodus 23 passage a minute. Exodus 23, verse 10. For six years you shall, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you should let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, for the, beasts, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. I just don't think that what God is saying here is, look, if you do this, I'm going to give you an abundant harvest. That'll be your reward. Do this, and I'm going to give you an abundant harvest. I think it's more that by doing that, the blessing would come. Not as a reward, but just in the doing of it, right? The blessing comes through obeying the law. So by obeying the law, Israel knew the blessing that God had invested within the law. So by obeying this command in particular, God ensured the blessing of abundant crops. And we can analyze this from a very practical level, right? When you leave, a, once you use a, a field for so often, it depletes the nutrients. It is a wise thing to leave the field bare for a year so that the soil can be replenished and set it up for several more years of agricultural harvest, right? So just by doing this thing, by doing what God told them to do, the blessing was in that. Does that I hope that makes, I hope that's clear. It's not like giving the dog the treat. It's that just by doing it, the blessing's already there. The blessing is there in it. By doing it, they would experience the blessing as the natural, logical consequence of obeying. So God had already provided in the fabric of the law His blessing for His people. And another one that we can actually relate to our own experiences, maybe, people that we know, this, the seventh commandment, right? In 2014, you shall not commit adultery. How many marriages have been shipwrecked because a spouse committed adultery? Right? It's not that, oh, you guys have been so faithful to one another. Here's the blessing. The blessing comes in the fidelity of walking together in marital faithfulness to one another. The blessing is in the doing of it. You experience it as you do it. Now, I think we can, again, make a parallel between the Old and New Covenants. And again, let me reiterate that the new, that new covenant Christians are not under the old covenant law. That's what Paul is addressing primarily in the book of Galatians. Right? That there is no salvation. That there is no, that there is no walking under the old covenant. 
that's been already fulfilled in Christ. Christ has already done everything necessary to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law. There's no extra merit that we can gain ourselves by, for example, circumcising our children. But the principle, I think, remains very similar. When we obey God's commands under the new covenant, we know the joy and the blessing that God intends for his people. So again, let's consider Ephesians 4.32, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How many of us have experienced the pain of unkindness or unforgiveness, either in our own lives or in the lives of fellow believers that we know and love? And yet we also probably know the joy that comes when brothers and sisters act in kindness toward one another. Or when a person extends forgiveness to someone who has wronged them. Have you ever seen the joy and the blessing of reconciled Christians? Where one hurt another, but forgiveness was extended and that relationship was restored? There is joy in the doing of God's commands. So God provides for our joy. God provides for our good. God provides for our blessing in the commands he gives to us. Now, reading Exodus 19 through 20, as I said last week, 19 through 24 belong as kind of one unit. We looked at the bookends last week, chapters 19 and 24, and then the kind of the central part is chapters 20 through 23, these various laws that God begins to give his people. And we see the ideal here of what God intended for Israel. But when we read the rest of the Old Testament, many of us have, we painfully observe that Israel failed miserably to obey God's law and to live out what God intended for them in this covenant. In fact, and we'll see this in a few weeks, in less than 40 days, less than 40 days, Israel disobeyed the law by building and then worshiping a golden calf in place of Yahweh. And that single act of disobedience really encapsulates the rest of the Old Testament. We can summarize the rest of the Old Testament in that story. Over and over again, we would read throughout the Old Testament that Israel would disobey God's law. They would act unfaithfully towards the covenant, their covenant with God. And yet, God was exceedingly kind to them. He was exceedingly patient with them. He disciplined them. He forgave them. He restored them because they were His people. But Israel would always fall away. And every time there was a new opportunity to sin, if there was a new opportunity to break covenant, they would do it. And finally, in the story of redemptive history, God finally withheld His mercy and brought the judgment that He had promised. Because Israel had broken the covenant, God would no longer abide with them. And so Israel's disobedience shows us two more features of the Old Covenant. Their breaking of the law shows us two more features of the Old Covenant. First, it was a conditional covenant. Right? God had called Israel into covenant with himself. He called them by grace. He did everything that was necessary for them to enter into it. But the old covenant depended upon Israel's total faithfulness. If Israel disobeyed the law, God would curse his people. He, they would have broken covenant with him, and therefore he would break covenant with them. So Israel's repeated disobedience broke the covenant so that in God's time, he finally brought his judgment and he cut off Israel from himself. The second feature of the Old Covenant that shows its 
that kind of reflects Israel's failure here is the fact that it was a covenant of stone, right? The old covenant was a covenant of stone. The law was given to Israel on stone tablets. They obeyed out of duty. Israel's failure to obey the law reveals the lack of an internal disposition. There was a lack of spiritual power for them to obey the law. There was no inner compulsion. They were simply motivated by the duty. They were motivated by the blessings and the curses. And so Israel failed and broke covenant with God. But their disobedience did not doom God's plan to redeem His people. Because God promised that He would make a new covenant with them. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, God tells Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, but I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this new covenant, unlike the old covenant, would be unconditional and therefore eternal. Not only would God do everything necessary for them to enter into this new covenant, He would also do everything necessary to keep us in this new covenant so that it would never be broken. The new covenant does not depend upon us. It depends upon God from beginning to end. He has sealed it. He did everything necessary to bring us in. He keeps us. Go read the the little letter of Jude and the key word keep, how God keeps us. God does everything necessary so that this covenant can never be broken. It is sealed from beginning to end. The new covenant does not depend upon our obedience to God's commands. Why? Because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, the righteous requirements that God had set before us. By Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, not only are our sins forgiven, but Christ's righteousness is merited to us. So Jesus fulfilled it all. The old covenant, He did it. What? What do you say in Matthew 5? Not one jot or one tittle shall pass away until all shall be fulfilled. And so that's why when we read the Old Testament law, one reason that we, one thing we want to look at when we read it is to see how did Christ fulfill it? What does this teach us about Christ? Because Christ fulfilled it from beginning to end. Every letter, every punctuation mark, every decoration of every letter. Christ fulfilled it. And because He fulfilled it, through His death and resurrection then, His righteousness is merited to us. Right? We talk about imputation. On the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ. It's as if our sins, that Jesus was dying for our sins. God counted our sins to Jesus. But the opposite is also more glorious. Because Christ's righteousness, what He was, is given to us. It is imputed to us. So when God sees us, what does He see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. The merits of Christ. Christ's righteousness has been given to us. And so all that He has done, His faithful 
keeping of the law is applied to us. And through Christ, we stand before God guiltless. We stand before God righteous. Furthermore, in the new covenant, God's new commands are written on our heart. We live in a covenant of the heart. We obey not merely out of duty, but out of love, just as, just as God prophesied in Jeremiah. Because we love God, we obey His commands. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Our obedience is motivated by love. He goes on to say in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So it is a new love for God, rooted in God's love for us, that compels him to obey. There's an internal disposition now, an internal desire, an internal motivation. That motivation is love. And even more than that, see how, much, how glorious the new covenant is? Even more than that, God has given us the power to obey His commands. This is the game changer. In our strength, we cannot do what God requires. So what has God done by His grace He has given to us His Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to do all that God commands of us. The Holy Spirit is God's gracious provision that Israel did not have. The Holy Spirit helps us to obey. Again, I don't have time to read this, but Galatians 5, verses 16-25 to calls us to live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit and not by the law. Our life is by the Spirit and therefore we walk in obedience to God's commands by that same Spirit. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 2-4. through 4, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So while the law helps us to see our sinfulness, it is powerless to save or bear fruit in our lives. We need a new and better covenant. And praise God, we have received it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So may we, as God's new covenant people, live and walk by the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and helps us to live out the righteousness of Christ by walking in obedience to His commands. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for the Old Testament. And even though, Lord, we live in a new era, we see who You are, we see Your holiness, we see Your character, and we see a reflection, Lord, of what we would be if it were not for You. We would see, we see ourselves, Lord, as a disobedient and rebellious people. A people who operate according to the flesh. A people who are motivated by sin. A people enslaved to spiritual powers and spiritual realities from which we cannot break free. And yet, Lord, we are so thankful for the new covenant. What you intended to do from the very beginning. How the old covenant foreshadows and anticipates even the new and better covenant that would be enacted for us, inaugurated for us in Christ. In Him, the law is complete. 
He has fulfilled it, every jot and every tittle, and we are thankful for that. And because He was able to do it, His righteousness is given to us, and we thank You, Lord, today that we stand righteous before You. We confess it is not of our own doing. We are incapable. We gladly walk in the righteousness of Christ, and we thank You for the Holy Spirit that enables us, that empowers us to live faithfully in this new covenant with You. We confess, Lord, that if it were up to us, we would fall a thousand times a day. We thank you that you keep us. You've given to us everything that is needed and required so that we can walk faithfully with you. Lord, help us to walk in this new covenant relationship. Help us to walk by the Spirit. Help us not to be enslaved. Help us to walk in the freedom of the Spirit. And in walking with you, Lord, may we know your blessing and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those who are coming to serve...